Escape Pod 25 October 27th, 2005 Today's story, The Great Old Pumpkin, by John Nagard Hi, I'm Steve Ely. It's Halloween in a few days, and so that sits the theme for this week's Escape Pod. Like most Western holidays, Halloween is a day deeply rooted in pagan tradition. And, like most holidays, it's since become a reason to wear funny clothes and sell candy. I have to admit, I've always been a bit conflicted about Halloween. I'm the only one I know who is. Most people see it as creative and festive, and I have a lot of neo-pagan friends who take the veil between the worlds thing seriously, but see that as totally separate from dressing like an undead Monica Lewinsky and going to parties. My problem with the holiday, besides the fact that I suck at costume design, has been sort of an excess of literal thought. It bothered me that we were taking things that long ago used to scare the crap out of people. I'm talking vampires and ghosts and the night that the dead walked the earth, and making something funny out of it. I felt that was, I don't know, disrespectful to the people who once believed that. Or maybe to the vampires. It doesn't really bug me as much as it used to, and even less now that I have a kid I can dress funny instead of having to do it myself. But I still find it fascinating and sort of odd how thin the line is between horror and humor. I mean, if you think about it, very few of us go to horror films to be genuinely scared. The best most horror movies can do is startle us a bit, but mostly we're amused. There are exceptions, and I suspect that the list of what truly scares us varies from person to person. But if it fails, the reaction is universal. We laugh at it. I have a theory on this, and that's that horror and humor are the same bullet with different penetrations. Both of them surprise us with an unexpected peril, a twist in the natural order of things. The trick is whether it evokes true empathy. If it doesn't engage us too much and make us believe in it, If the peril doesn't seem too perilous, then it's funny. On the other hand, if the twist digs inside us and strikes a chord with our imaginations, if we put ourselves in the character's place and start really thinking what if, it becomes horrific. This subscribes to the idea that laughter is a coping mechanism. It gives us a reaction we can have on the surface so that we don't have to let disturbing ideas get any deeper. If you want to test my theory, and you're feeling daring, try this experiment. Think about some of your favorite jokes, the ones you really find funny, and ask yourself, how would I feel if this actually happened? If this was how people treated each other in earnest? If you'd find it disturbing, then maybe I'm onto something. And maybe the reason we make Halloween funny is because we can't handle it the way it used to be. And that brings us to today's story. We're very pleased to present The Great Old Pumpkin by John Agard. It's a story you might know if you grew up watching the same stuff I did, but it takes a Lovecraftian turn of what if. John's a friend of mine who's been featured with us before. His story, Fungberger, was the very second escape pod. He lives in Seattle, and he's been published in the third alternative, 3SF and Neverworlds. This particular story was published last year by Strange Horizons for their Halloween special. And, as a holiday bonus, this will be our first story narrated with original background music. The music is by my friend Toby Chappell. 
He's a sysadmin by day, and a stretcher of the boundaries of good musical taste at night, with musical influences ranging from Dead Can Dance to Danny Elfman to, quote, a bunch of black metal bands you've probably never heard of. If it sounds creepy, dissonant, or demented, you're likely to find Toby lurking nearby. He's behind two Atlanta bands, Eyes of Legea and Amphigury. I'll have links to both on our website. So, lay down on your roof and look to the skies. It's story time. The Great Old Pumpkin by John Agard You must know, Doctor, that I did not choose to seek psychiatric help. I have no faith that I shall exit this room a healed man. I now know that I have been destined for the asylum since childhood. No mere conversation with you can steer me clear of that fate. That said... Let us proceed with this court-compelled farce before my mad prattle provokes your crabbiness further. As you are no doubt aware, I am the issue of solid Dutch stock, the prosperous Van Pelt family of St. Paul. Mine was a comfortable and happy childhood, and I spent much of it in the devoted service of the great old pumpkin. For him, I cultivated an annual pumpkin patch, mostly autumn gold and Big Macs, as I thought he would find the Atlantic Giants tacky. I also evangelized him in the community, relating the tale of how, every year on Hallowmass Eve, the day when the spiritual most strongly encroaches on the substantial, this mightiest of gourds would rise to revel across the world with the most sincere of his adorers. My neighbors were understandably skeptical, After all, not once had this super-being ever chosen to grace my pumpkin patch or any other place in our town. I vowed that I would coax him into my backyard, and I set out in the manner of a learned man to discover how I might do this. This quest led me into moldering libraries, cramped basement antiquaries, far-flung correspondences, and, on one occasion, frightening and persistent telephone conversations with a lunatic in Boston. The last raised alarms in my family. I promised them I would turn away from my studies, all the while resolving to continue them in secret. I committed everything I knew to memory, burned all my papers, and embroidered my most unfathomable and precious secrets in near-invisible thread on my security blanket, which, as you can see... I carry still. My continued investigations led me to certain grim texts detailing eldritch and macabre sincerities, chants, auto-sacrifice, sinister configurations of pumpkins, which would bait the great old pumpkin to my patch. On the Hallowmass Eve of two years ago, my investigations bore fruit, so to speak, I believe that I saw him, orange, flaming, and magnificent, hovering above me for an instant and then vanishing skyward into the constellations. 
Having tasted this small success, I knew that I could not simply sit and await him, but that I must seek him out. Thinking that such a search would be better conducted aloft, I decided to hire an aeroplane. My modest allowance raised complications, though. It took me eleven months and three weeks to save up a sufficient sum. With that money jangling in my pocket, I struck out for the aerodrome and asked after a pilot skilled in night reconnaissance. The mechanics there, diminutive, jaundiced fellows, directed me to a small French-themed café alongside the airstrip. There I met my pilot. He was a veteran of the war, with a characteristically large Gallic nose and sharp black eyes that peered from just underneath the seam of his leather flying cap. He nursed his root beer silently, his manner that of the haunted serviceman, and let his two friends supply the conversation. On his left sat a pretty French girl, whose eyes were completely obscured by heavy spectacles. On his right sat a chattering yellow fellow, kin, by his looks, to the mechanics in the hangar. I approached and sat down with them to explain my business. "'Sounds dangerous, sir,' the French girl said when I was finished. The pilot's small yellow friend warbled at us in a strange language. Aramaic, perhaps. The pilot waved away this concern and nodded at me, indicating he would accept my contract. We set an appointment for dusk on the eve of Hollow Mass, only five days distant, and I left him to his friends, leaving, as a gift, a jug of root beer. On Hollow Mass Eve, I found at the aerodrome a scene of reassuring efficiency. Mechanics fluttered over my pilot's machine, a Sopwith model that was, like him, a veteran of the war. They poured it full of fuel and castor lubricant, and fed long belts of brass cartridges into the breeches of its vicar's guns. I was surprised that we would be going armed, but after a moment's thought, I was again reassured. An attitude of constant readiness befitted my pilot, as a man of action and a daredevil. The crew chief noticed me, and I was instantly incorporated into his bustle. He and his fellows boosted me into an observer's cockpit that had been cut into the fuselage behind the pilot. In their chirping Aramaic, they intimated to me that I would need some kind of headgear, so I wound my security blanket around my head and face in the manner of a Bedouin tribesman. Over this arrangement, the mechanic snapped a pair of goggles, and I felt snug as one of the vicar's gun's chambered bullets. My pilot appeared then, climbing a ladder and vaulting into the Sopwith. I scritched him on the head to indicate my readiness, and without delay he barked out the order to start his engine. The aeroplane chugged to life, instantly suffusing the air with a hell-hot mixture of castor oil and petroleum vapors. The pilot's silk scarf flapped before me as we bumped off of the grass and onto the airstrip, and within two hundred feet the Sopwith was aloft and headed for Eau Claire where one of my correspondents maintained a very sincere pumpkin patch. The Sopwith climbed swiftly, and soon we encountered the first layer of clouds. The air grew wet and unsatisfying, and utterly dark, save for the flames jetting from the Sopwith's exhaust ports. Unaccustomed to the altitude, I dozed until a sudden roll to starboard jerked me awake. I sat up in my seat, searching the skies for whatever had drawn my pilot's interest. 
we had emerged from the clouds and into a supernaturally clear night, with all of creation spreading out in a great inverted bowl around us. And before us, just this side of the horizon, was a faint orange glow upon the clouds. Within a few minutes, the speedy Sopwith had overtaken the glow. My pilot descended until our landing wheels were skimming the orange-suffused clouds and then began to circle slowly. My watch said we had been in the air for 45 minutes. We were approaching the limits of our safe endurance. I closed my eyes and prayed that my quest not have been in vain, that I be allowed to see the great old pumpkin, and as I whispered the last beseeching word, I heard my pilot yelp. There, not more than a thousand yards off our port wingtips, was the great old pumpkin himself, ascending from the clouds as smoothly as if he were borne by a Manhattan elevator. He was as magnificent as I had imagined. His stem rose majestically from a creamy orange body of heartbreakingly perfect radial symmetry, and bountiful vines streamed behind him like hair from Botticelli's Venus. My eyes were suddenly wet with tears, and I realized that I had reached one of those measuring lines by which we gauge life's progress, that all days after that one would be ineffably different from those that had gone before. We came out of our turn and headed directly for the great old pumpkin. I suddenly remembered my camera, stowed on the floor of the Sopwith's Observer cockpit. I bent to retrieve it, all the time keeping my eyes riveted on my subject, which then whirled and presented its face to us. The camera fell from my nerveless fingers and into the clouds below as I beheld this blood-curdling horror. Instead of friendly cross-eyes and gapped teeth, into its wide orange visage were sewn jagged spirals of alien script and though of course I could not read the glyphs, simply witnessing them was enough to understand their meaning. They dragged my mind away to their subject places, each of them impressing upon me a cavorting pageant of despair and rot. Worse than that was what lay behind those awful incisions, for instead of a candle or, for safety reasons, a lantern, within the great old pumpkin burned a queer kind of furnace that was tended by thready, murmuring minions. This furnace emitted not light and heat, but rather madness, and with horror I realized that its emanations were not illuminating the clouds, but rather that the clouds were fluorescing under them, just as a squid will fluoresce under certain radiations. I shrank from this dread emission, pulling my head down into the observer's cockpit. My thumb instinctively found my mouth, and I clutched my security blanket, which had escaped my head somewhat. I sought to reassure myself with a familiar chapter of the Gospels. But of course it was useless. The madness shone through our fuselage as if it were air. I felt my mind changing, unraveling as I bathed in it. Certain parts of my psyche withered to dust, others swelled like an autumn squash. My very essence was reshaped, as was the Pompeii of antiquity. Time ran strangely in the thing's proximity. It seemed I had lived ten years before my ordinarily quick-witted pilot reacted. I can imagine no more pitiful response than the one he chose. 
he drove us directly at the thing and reached for the triggers of his vicar's guns. Their sound was hollow and far away, and their flashes mere sparks before the luminous glory of the pumpkin. Dive! I screamed at him, but that sound was lost with all the others. My pilot's glove seemed to have frozen on the machine gun triggers. We crawled towards the terrible thing, spitting impotent tracers. I slapped my pilot's shoulder, and this finally galvanized him. He ceased firing and nosed the Sopwith over, sending us plummeting beneath the thing. One of the thread-like tenders glanced over its shoulder at us as we passed the lowermost incision. Then, from somewhere in the ventral portions of that awful fruit, came a response. A white-hot hail of eldritch fire that lashed us and drilled pumpkin-seed-shaped holes in the Sopwith's wings and fuselage. Our engine's tenor suddenly became uncertain. My pilot shook his fist and cursed our enemy. Then we plunged into the coal-mine black of the clouds. I was strangely calm as we fell. The sudden smashing death from a high-altitude crash would be a small toll to pay to escape the grasp of that dread orange being I knew. The worst horror, though, was yet to come. The pilot re-established control of the plane just as we emerged from the clouds. For a brief moment, my sense of self-preservation reasserted itself, and I was flooded with relief. But then I saw the sight that ended my life as a normal man and ushered me into true understanding. Beneath us, in all the fields of Wisconsin and Minnesota, stretched a star field of pumpkins, their luminous orange faces turned upwards toward their god, their mouths wailing mockery of all civilized life. My pilot could not resist this damned noise. He also howled tribute skyward. The sound overwhelmed me, and I slumped feebly in my seat. I have no further memories of that night. Somehow my pilot must have regained enough of his senses to fly us home and put me in a taxicab. I awoke in my own bed at sunrise the next morning. The orange stains and pumpkin seed holes in my security blanket testified that my awful adventure had been no mere dream. I will admit that sometimes I feel a temptation to seek out the pumpkin again and perhaps learn more for the experience. This impulse is the only lunatic thought alive within me. The cyanide-laced candies I have mailed to my correspondents, the jars of petrol I have flung into the antiquaries and museums, the shootings at the Aerodrome Café, these are the actions of an eminently sane man. You see, Doctor, while I cannot claim full knowledge of that sinister gourd, I know this much. We cannot risk another encounter with him. If some fool shall call him up again, he shall be no more kind to us than the plow is to the anthill. The only record of my foolish pursuit that I dare allow to survive is my precious security blanket. I have embroidered upon it certain spells and rituals which I hope will serve as a bane to him, so that he will be unable to approach this world. You confiscate it at your peril. Yet these good-hearted efforts may still come to nothing. Still, his servants campaign in the neighborhoods as I once did. 
Not long ago, a cherubic boy came to call on me to tell me of the great old pumpkin. Since then, I have made it a practice to keep my household firearms loaded and in convenient proximity to the front door. So that is my story, Doctor. I see you leaning over your plywood desk, ready to dispense your wisdom, to say the words that will cure me and free the world of one more mad menace. But before you speak, consider this. To truly heal me, you must reform the cosmos itself. Your words must leap from your mouth and cascade across the universe, undoing all of the uncaring, unfathomable things that lurk outside our cozy cave of a planet. Can you do this, Doctor? Can you? I see the fear in your face. Come, what say you? Stay out of stupid pumpkin patches, blockhead. Five cents, please. And that was our story. I suspect that Charles Schultz is going to be shambling forth from his grave now. But that's John Agard's inexorable doom, not mine. Again, I want to thank Toby Chapel for composing the music specifically for this story. If you loved it or you hated it, please drop us a line and let us know, or post a comment in our discussion forums at escapepod.org. This kind of music is not the sort of thing we do often, but your feedback will help us decide whether and when to do it again. If you're near Atlanta, you might also like to know that Toby's band, Eyes of Legea, will be playing at the Masquerade on November 17th. Now, a promo for those of you who own Sarcastic Beagles. Have you been looking for a podcast about dogs? Well, your search is over. Because you've just found the Canine Cast. Canine Cast is a dog podcast. And you can hear it at caninecast.com. The first thing that we are going to talk about is canine influenza. Now that's the first step in clicker training. Check out the Canine Cast if you've got questions about dogs. Our first email is from Sherry in Minnesota. We've sound seeing tours and interviews. We're here at the World Canine Disc Championship. Hi, today we're here with the president of Greyhound Pets of America. There's something for everyone at Canine Cast. It'll be a great thing for you, your dog, and your family. Canine Cast is a podcast about dogs, not music. So if you want to hear music like this, go to the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com and check out the Amphibians and their song, Caban de Denois. Check out CanineCast at caninecast.com. Thanks, Walter and Tara. If you'd like to send us a promo or a book review, we'd love to play it. You can email us at editor at escapepod.org or call our voicemail line at 206-666-EPOD. You can get more details at our website, which is now and forever escapepod.org. If you're digging what you hear on Escape Pod, we hope you'll tell someone you know, or blog about it and tell a lot of people you don't know. We also encourage you to donate, if you can, with the PayPal link at our site, so we can keep buying and bringing you great stories. Whether you choose to donate or not, you can get the stories for free under our Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Our featured listener this week is James Cameron. No, not the Abyss guy, but James Cameron from Outback, Australia, who's possibly our most remote listener. He asked me not to give the name of his village for privacy reasons. I doubt I could pronounce it anyway. It apparently has more vowels than people. 
He first contacted me with a question about routing tables so he could get our files cheaper via his split satellite slash CDMA radio link to the internet. He tells me that he listens to Escape Pod, quote, with a beekeeper's hat to keep the flies away from the earplugs, walking a mile or two each day for exercise, dodging ants, sheep, kangaroos, and snakes. That's a mental image that's going to stick with me. So thanks, James, and we're glad you're listening. Our music for the intro and outro is by permission of Daikaiju, also specializing in subtle, ambient mood music from hell. That was our show. I hope you all have a happy Halloween. And remember, kids, it's okay to take candy from strangers, if you gang up on them and you're in disguise. Until next week, have fun. <laughs>